What an appropriate song to start out, set the tone for this evening's lesson. And he didn't know what I was preaching on. I don't say that because I gave him the song in advance. I really didn't. We are currently, obviously, a little past the Thanksgiving holiday and December beginning here on Wednesday. We are now entering that season that is known by a lot of folks as the most wonderful time of the year. It is a season that is known and anticipated and celebrated because of its focus on the Christ child, family, giving, peace, and joy. In fact, I would say that it is the joy that is found in those first four elements that is one of the driving forces that fuels the attraction of this season. Joy is attractive. Joy is one of the most central, most powerful, and most prominent themes of this time of the year. The word joy is seen on countless Christmas cards. It's seen on decorations. It's seen on all kinds of novelties this kind of year. Joy, 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 joy. We sing it in songs such as joy to the world this time of year. We usually don't sing joy to the world in July. Now, we understand about Christ's birthday and all of that, but we still don't sing joy to the world very often in July, right? And of course, joy is something that was heralded in the account of the Christ child's birth, where the angels announced his birth to the shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, by saying, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people, for unto you there is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so, as the world focuses in on Again, the Christ child and family and giving and peace this time of year. A huge part of that attraction, that anticipation, that celebration is joy. Joy is an incredibly powerful force. We know that love is an extremely powerful force, but so is joy. Joy pulls in people from all walks of life. It pulls in people from all places because, and especially when there's not a lot of joy to be found in people's everyday existence. Joy draws people like a moth to a flame or like, like people moths who go to the flame lights of Honor Heights Park, right? At this time of year when people are drawn to the lights like moths to a flame and, and people are drawn to joy the same way that they're drawn to to those sorts of things. Two weeks ago tonight, I preached a lesson entitled, Strengthening Our Joy and Rejoicing in Our Strengthening. Most of you will recall that that is the sermon wherein I used a quarter to explain that strength and joy are two sides of the same entity, one fuels the other, and so on and so forth. Joy and strength are inseparable. You can't have a one-sided coin. No matter how thin you slice it, there's two sides to it. And we talked about how joy and strength enable and empower each other whenever either is put into action. The punchline, more or less, was the more joy we have in Christ, the greater our Christian strength. And the greater our strength in Christ, the more our Christian joy. 
But there's another place, rather than just as individuals, and how I applied that in that lesson. There is another place in which this flip side truth, this, this idea of strength and joy being part of the same coin, if you will, the same entity and being inseparable. There's another aspect of it that I want to discuss tonight in a sermon entitled Joyful Attraction. And that is when it comes to attracting others to the light and the life and the joy of the Lord's church. You see, just as joy is one of the most central and powerful and prominent themes of the holiday season, so too is joy very attractive and strengthening when it comes to numerically strengthening the Lord's church. Joy is a huge part of that. Joy is so attractive. Please open with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're all very, very familiar with Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches the first gospel sermon. They ask at the end, they know they've sinned, and they say, what are we going to do about this? If I may paraphrase, you know the story very well, Acts chapter 2. Peter says, let each one of you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them that the promise is for them and for their children, that is all generations, all who are far off, that is all who are separated from God, all whom the Lord our God would call. And we know that happens through the gospel. And, and so we're familiar with that passage. But I want to have us tonight focus in on what happened after that. I don't want us to forget or neglect to mention all that happened immediately after that, which led to such explosive growth of the Lord's church in the first century, because I think sometimes we miss it. Right here in Acts chapter 2, after he tells them in verse 38 that they need to repent and be baptized, he tells them in verse 39 the promises for them and their children. I want you to begin reading, follow along with me in verses 40 down through to the end of the chapter and, and watch, watch this. And with many other words, verse 40, he testified and exhorted, exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who, here it comes, gladly received his word were baptized. In that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with, here it comes again, gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, daily, those who were being saved. I want you to notice the joy and how attractive it was. I want you to notice the joy they had and how it just pulled people in like a moth to a flame. There was a joy and gladness 
in their finding and accepting God's forgiveness as they repented and were baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and ultimately saved as Peter has instructed. We see this in verses 38 through 41. Verse 41 specifically mentioning how they gladly, happily, joyfully that is, those who received his instruction were baptized. There's, there's a joy there. We move on and we would notice that their joy and their gratitude and their gladness of being saved and forgiven caused them to want to continue in that same apostles' teaching which had saved them in the first place. See, that's something we sometimes forget. Not only were they saved by obeying that which Peter said, but they, they so enjoyed it, they were so in love with it, they were so grateful to be saved, they were so gladly receiving his word that they wanted to continue in that very same thing. Hey, when you find something that works, you keep it, right? This worked, they were saved and they knew it, so they continued in that same apostles' doctrine and there was joy. And it was their great joy and gladness that they experienced and they exhibited to the world around them by being constantly together, by eating and drinking and sharing and being together, taking care of one another's needs, being united in the same purpose daily, which the lost world found to be an attraction that they could not deny. They found it irresistible, verses 44 through 47. We see in verse 46, they were eating their food with gladness, with joy. There was this, there was this joy and they were taking care of each other and they were together and they were happy. And look what it says happened. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They had favor with all the people. What does that mean? Joy was attractive. Joy was pulling people in from all over the place. This, this oneness, this unity, this, this happiness that they had, this joy, just it caused these people who didn't have it to just wow and just drew them in in droves. Joy attracts. Joy attracts. Now, this account of the first day in existence of the Lord's church shouldn't really come as, as all that much of a surprise. Just the same as much of the attraction and appeal of this time of year is due to its focus on Jesus and peace and joy. The Bible says that the Lord's church is, or certainly that the Lord's church should be in effect about those same exact three things. Did you know that? I know we did. The Lord's church is about those same three things. It's about Jesus Christ, right? And it's about joy and it's about peace. In fact, the Bible gets right up against this in Romans chapter 14, if you want to turn there. In Romans 14, where the Apostle Paul was encouraging those church members who had different opinions and perspectives on certain issues of their day, he was encouraging them all to just simply love and accept and work together with each other despite their differences of opinion. Look what he tells them in verse 17. In verse 17 of Romans 14, he tells them pretty clearly that the Lord's church is not all about those personal differences of opinion that he's been discussing in the first part of the chapter. That's not what the Lord's church is about. That's not the important stuff. The important stuff is what? Righteousness and peace and joy. Isn't that what it says? In the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, the Lord's church is about righteousness. Well, it doesn't say Jesus, but we know Jesus was righteous. It's very close. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he's on to say something that we often skip or miss, I think, as well in verse 18. Look what he says in verse 18. He who serves Christ in these things. What things? 
righteousness, peace, and joy, is acceptable to God, watch this phrase, and approved by men. Approved by, what do you mean, Paul? When the Lord's church is together, despite some of their differences of opinion, and all these things he had talked about in their day. He said it's about righteousness, peace, and joy. And when, when, when the God's people are all about righteousness, peace, and joy, those are the big deal, okay? Not the other stuff. Those are the big deal. And, and so he said that, that the one who serves God in those things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Men approve. Men are attracted to, give approval of, find intriguing, want to come to a place where righteousness and peace and joy reign supreme. Joy is attractive. That's why they're approved by men. So the question I want to ask us tonight is this. Are we really joyful children of God? Are we really joyful, filled with joy children, Certainly ought to be. Anything that happens in this life, we have a God who's bigger. Is that right? We have a God who is going to outlast and take us to a place if we are obedient to him and humble ourselves before him, if we live for him and give our lives to him, he's going to take us to a place that's going to outlast, outmaneuver all of everything we know now. Is that right? He's bigger than all this. There's nothing in this life that God is not bigger than. And so we should have this joy all the time, despite all the things in this life that can happen to us. The Old Testament children of God, or I'm sorry, the Old Testament people of God, they who understand, understood what they had were joyful. And they didn't even have what we've got. We've got much more in Christ than, than the Jews had in the Old Testament. We're children of the living God. Listen to <clears throat> David in the Psalms. Listen to the joy that he said he had. And I'll give you the reference after I read the text. I really want you to listen to this. David said, as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before my face. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them Ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous, and with favor you will surround him as with a shield. Psalm 5, verses 7 and 8, and 11 and 12. Let all those who rejoice, who put their trust in you, let them sh ever shout for joy because of you. Is that us? <coughs> was David. David would go on to say in Psalm 35, verses 9, 10, and 27, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. There's not any doubt. He said, well, you know, I may be joyful if everything goes okay. Well, I may show people, you know, that God's pretty good as long as treat. That's not what he said. He said, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause and let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. 
Again, Psalm 35, 9, 10, and 27. Turn to me in your Bibles to Psalm 89, would you please? Let's take a look in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 was not written by David. Psalm 89 was written by Ethan the Ezraite. Now, Ethan the Ezraite was renowned for his godly wisdom, 1 Kings 4 and verse 31. Let's see what he has to say about the joy and rejoicing that it ought to be at the heart and soul of every one of God's grateful and forgiven children. Psalm 89, let's set the stage with the first three verses, five through seven. Psalm 89, five through seven. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. In verses 5 through 7, he sets you up by telling you who God is. And then as we move on to verses 13 through 16, he talks about those who know this God. He says, You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Watch this. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name, they rejoice all day long. Those who knew this God, this God that he has described, in your name, he says, those who know you rejoice all day long. In your righteousness, they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And in your favor, our horn is exalted. Is that us? What are we known for? What are we, as a church, known for? Some people say, well, oh yeah, Church Christ? That's those people who don't have music. <laughs> to which I respond, we have some of the most beautiful music that has ever been sung because it comes from the heart. I'd say, oh yeah, that's those people that believe in water salvation. No, no, I, I believe in salvation by grace through faith when we trust God and do what he said. <clears throat> There's a lot of different things that we're known for. But shouldn't we be known as a people who are constantly joyful, as God's people? When, when people think of us as members of the Lord's church, I believe based on, on this lesson and, and so many others and, and all that I read in God's word, we ought to be a people who are known for our joy. Reminded of the story of <clears throat> the man who had the very, very, very positive wife Everything he ever had a problem with, she'd always find something good in. He thought one day, he thought, I think I've told you this before, but it's all right, it fits. One day he says, I know what I'll get her. I know something, buddy, she can't say anything good about Satan. She can't say anything good about Satan. So he makes some comment about how Satan is so evil. His wife thinks about three seconds, and she says, but you've got to admit, he does a really good job at what he does. Shouldn't we be known as a people who are joyful in affliction, 
who rejoice constantly because of what we have waiting for us in heaven, who rejoice constantly because we are beneath the shelter of his wings. Is that us? Will that be us in a few minutes when we leave here? Will that be us tomorrow when we go to school or go to work? Are we a joyful, grateful, exuberant, excited, and rejoicing people every day of the week? For example, are we ever and forever rejoicing daily, number one, in our eternal salvation? Do we rejoice daily, number one, in our eternal salvation? Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah said, I will rejoice in my salvation. From God. It's reminiscent of the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that story in Acts 8. Philip goes up to him. They have this discussion. Throughout the discussion, he finds out that he needs to be baptized. And he said, look, there's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, well, you may if you believe with all your heart. And so he went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And they come up out and <clears throat> Philip was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord. And it says, and the eunuch went on his way, what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Why? Because he knew he was saved. The only thing that changes in that story is he goes from knowing he's lost to knowing he's saved. That's why he, rejo he rejoiced in his salvation. I, and I know we come together and we do that on Sunday, but, but do we rejoice in our salvation every day that ends in why? Not just Sunday. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul who said he wanted to finish his race with joy, which he did and, and went on to receive the crown of life. He rejoiced in his salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 8 and 9, Peter talks about this people who rejoiced with joy inexpressible and full of glory because of their salvation. Are we forever rejoicing daily, number one, in our eternal salvation? You know why I ask you that? I'll tell you why. Because there is an overwhelming draw. There is an irresistible attraction to people who are joyful in what they've got. And if we are daily rejoicing in our eternal salvation and what we have in Christ, there's a pull there to people who don't have it. Are we number two? Ever and forever rejoicing in the midst of our trials. Now, we all know it's not easy. This is a very familiar statement. We know from James 1, 2, and 3, we know that. We also know that the context of Peter's comments that I just mentioned in 1 Peter 1, 8, 9, those people who rejoiced with joy inexpressible and full of glory because of their salvation, the context of that text is trials. He said, even though you got all these things, you, you, you rejoice in them, even though now, if necessary, for a little while, you grieve by various trials, that the testing of your faith may be like fire, and, and that's the context. So those people who rejoiced were rejoicing even in their trials. And, and look at what he further wrote in 1 Peter 4 about this very same thing. And, and I know, and sometimes when I look at these and I, and I think about preaching these things and, and things we've heard a hundred times, 
And, and they get tied into a lesson, I think, well, do I really, should I really say that again? I mean, people know that. You all know that. You've heard it, right? But see, it's not in hearing it. It's in the doing it. Isn't that what James said? Do we, I'll tell you what, I'll make you promise. Make you promise. The day that every one of us in the church absolutely rejoices in every trial we have, I'll stop teaching it. Because sometimes we don't. Don't we let Satan get us down sometimes when we're going through hard stuff? Don't we? I do. Maybe you all do great, but sometimes I mess up. And I need to rejoice more. I need to rejoice more in my trials because when I do, that's attractive to people who don't have the power to do that. That's part of evangelism. And I need to be better at that. In 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 12, Peter had not only addressed it in the first chapter here, but look what he says in chapter 4, about the same subject, 4.12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't think it's weird or different or that you're unique when you start going through the fire. Verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's blasphemed, but on your part he's glorified. This is how we glorify God. Now we're not crazy. The Bible says the King James Version, we're peculiar, but we're not crazy, okay? We don't <clears throat> rejoice just to be different. We don't rejoice in some fake way. We don't rejoice to make a point and draw people to something, and, and that's all we're doing it for. It's, it's not a fake thing. It's not a, <clears throat> it's not a fantasy. It's not a myth. We rejoice because we know the God who supersedes everything that happens on this planet. That's why we rejoice. We rejoice because we know God's got it. And we know that no matter what happens, neither life nor death, angels, principalities, powers, none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He knew who had the controls. He knew who he's going to be with, no matter if it was here, there, or somewhere in between. He knew. And so he rejoiced. That's the kind of joy that we're talking about. It's real. It, it isn't something we do. It's something we are because of the one that we know. Can we still rejoice in the midst of our troubles? Because when we can, it makes an incredible impact on the lives of other people who are drawn to this strange phenomenon that, that they don't have the power to accomplish. We, we see this in, let me give you just a couple of quick Bible texts. You know them, you don't need to turn to them. In Acts chapter five, verse 40, through chapter six and verse two, the apostles left the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. You remember that story, right, that account? They rejoiced that they'd been counted worthy to, be, to suffer. And daily, they continue to preach. In chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, And in those days, when the number of disciples was what? Multiplying. We separate that down, you see. We want to talk about, you know, the distribution of bread in Acts 6, and, and we want to totally separate what happened in Acts 5. But when Luke wrote that, it was all one continuous flow. When Luke wrote that, they went on their way rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer. Boom. Then... They continued to preach the name of Jesus, and in those days when the church was multiplying, boom, 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 those go together. Why was the number in the church multiplying? I'll give you one reason. There were several. They were preaching the truth, etc. We know that. 
I'll give you one reason. Just from the context, the way it's set up. Because they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Joy attracts. Even and especially when it's joy in the midst of trials. About Paul and Silas, jailer, Acts 16, 25 and following. Around midnight they're singing psalms and hymns of praise and praying to God. And the jailers were, and the uh, inmates were what? Listening to them. Now they may have said, been saying, these guys are nuts. Have you seen the beating they've taken? But I'll tell you what, I bet there's a lot of respect there too. And I bet they were listening to find out what on earth these guys were into. And when the jailer comes in and, and, and he wants to throw himself on his sword and, and Paul says, don't do that, we're all here. He fell down before them and said, sirs, what must I do to be? He knew there was something real to their joy and their, their willingness to suffer for what they believed. And that made a big difference. Oh, and by the way, he and his whole family became Christians later that night. Joy attracts. Joy attracts. So are we rejoicing in our trials and tribulations? And then finally, and this is the big one I really want to get to as well. Number three, are we constantly and continually rejoicing to see and to be together? with one another. Turn to me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. Do you just light up when you have the opportunity to get together and do anything with your brethren? Are we constantly rejoicing to see and to be together with one another? See, if we're going to spend eternity in heaven together, where everything is joyful and perfect, then we ought to get a taste of that down here by being together and celebrating what God has done for us. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. Fairly lengthy reading, but stay with me, please. Notice the joy and rejoicing that comes with seeing one another and being together. Verse 17, but we brethren having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoring more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Notice the question Paul asks. What is our crown? What is the crown of our hope, our joy, our rejoicing? What is, what is the pinnacle of all that? He says, isn't it even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. You are our joy. Can we honestly say and point to one another and say, you are my joy in Christ? We should be able to. Paul said he did. Therefore, chapter 3 and verse 1, 1 Thessalonians, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to do what, Paul? To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. They were struggling. 
but they could still have joy by being together. Verse 5, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our afflictions and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Do you see it? See the joy that Paul, this was just eating him up. He was just consumed. He wanted this, this joy and rejoicing that being with them would bring. One of the single most attractive aspects of the church is the incredible Christ-like love and desire that we have, or should have, to be constantly together with our spiritual brothers and sisters. That is a huge draw. You suppose there's some, you suppose there's some lonely people in this world? You suppose there's some people that feel deserted in this world? Let me see, what did they say that one of the major reasons for the teen suicide rate was feeling alone, sad, depressed, lonely? A lot of people like that, right? It's not just teenagers. And to them, there is nothing that would be as attractive as the kind of love that Paul is talking about that causes us just to rejoice. The world needs to understand. People all around us had always ought to know that there is nothing on this earth we'd rather be doing than be together with our brethren. We're going to say it plain and simple. There's nothing on this earth that we'd rather be doing, yes, in worship to God, yes, but not just in worship to God. They ought to know that the highlight of our, our week and our life and our existence is when we as God's children are together, worshiping, working, whatever it is, the way Paul wanted to be together with those in Thessalonica. That is the kind of joy and fellowship and brotherhood that we should feel as though I just can't wait to experience again and again because it is as compellingly attractive to a people as it can possibly be, especially as so many are today, so alone. And as we saw back in the first century when we read Acts 2, 40 through 47. So do those scriptures that we read tonight on joy and rejoicing do they truly tell who we are? Do they describe us as children of God? This is not the invitation, so hang in there. Just letting you know. Sounds like one, but it ain't. Will that be us in a few minutes when we leave here? Will that be us tomorrow or next week when this lesson is gone and forgotten? When I say to you, well, two weeks ago I preached on, and you say, oh, I'd forgotten that. Or when somebody said to me, what would you preach on two weeks ago? And I say, I'd forgotten that. Even then, will we be a grateful, joyful, exuberant, and excited Christian? Will we be rejoicing in our salvation, in our tribulation, in our conversation, and our fellowship as a holy nation? Perhaps a better question than that is this. Is that how the people around us will see us? That's an even better question. Is that how they will perceive us? Will they see us as joyful, grateful, encouraging, and uplifting? 
Especially, this is so important when it comes to evangelism because joyfulness attracts while sullenness repels. Joyfulness softens hearts while hopelessness hardens them. Rejoicing creates converts while a downcast countenance repels them. I want to read to you a couple of paragraphs from the Prison Missionary Newsletter back in September of 2015, back when Ron Haas was the prison minister out of Owasso. There's an old prison missionary newsletter with these couple of uh, paragraphs and a short story on it. Listen to this. He says, some time ago, Mary and I were headed across north central Oklahoma on our way to Wichita. As we were about to enter Barnsdall, we started seeing signs, both informative and entertaining. Home of Anita Bryant and home of Clark Gable were among the signs. The best sign, in my opinion, was the one we saw on our return trip as we were entering Barnsdall from the other direction. It said, Barnsdall, home of 1,380 nice people and three old grouches. It gave us a laugh. I wondered how many love challenge, I love that term. I wonder how many love challenged citizens from Barnsdall suspected they were among those three. Because some strange folks actually glory in their bad behavior. I wonder if there were any who actually hoped they were among the three. I have little doubt, he wrote, that Barnsdall residents could have gotten close to naming those three. The bottom line is people will know us by our attitudes. We sing the song, they'll know we're Christians by our love. They'll know we're Christians by our joy as well. They'll know whether or not Jesus is real to us, whether or not his promises of peace and joy are real, by whether or not we really have it. Paul said in Philippians 4, 4, and 5, as we well know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I would ask for a show of hands, but I don't want to embarrass anybody. So don't raise your hand even if you know. But how many of you know the next line? The next line says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Right after saying rejoice the Lord always, again I'll say rejoice. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Rejoice in the Lord always. Because if you're rejoicing, you're a more gentle person. If you're a person who's rejoicing, you don't get angry as quickly. If you're a person who's rejoicing in what you've got, you aren't as quick-tempered, you aren't as frustrated, you aren't as depressed, you're rejoicing. And so you're more temperate, you're more gentle. So we should rejoice always so that other men will see our gentleness. Why? Because it's attractive. Boy, is it attractive. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength, because the strength of the Lord is your joy, because joy is attractive, because joy is what everybody wants and needs more of in their lives. That's why this season is anticipated so. Because the immeasurable joy that we have in Christ is so attractive to the lost and lonely dying world all around us, but they've got to see it in us. Let us follow the words of the psalmist who said, Psalm 35, 9, My soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. Psalm 149.5, let the saints be joyful in glory, let them sing aloud on their beds. And finally, Psalm 89.15,
Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. As we close, are you the joyful person that God wants you to be, that Jesus died so that you could be? If not, why not? Are you walking in the light of God's grace, God's presence, God's purpose, and God's instruction? Are you rejoicing in your salvation, in your tribulation, in your conversations, and in your status as a member of a holy nation? If you're not, then it's time to change it. It's time to change it, brethren. If you're not in Christ, you have no reason to rejoice because your sins haven't been forgiven like the eunuch and those in Acts 2. You need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. But if you are a Christian and you've already done that and you've started that walk with Jesus, but like David, you say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Somewhere in your everyday life, whether it's just sin or the mundane or, or the cares and worries of life, it's just kind of choked that joy out. Brethren, God wants you to be joyful. He wants people to see that joy in you because joy attracts. Joy is powerful. If you don't have it, if you've lost it somewhere along the way and you just need the prayers of the church to shore it up, to help you get it back, there's, listen, there's no weakness. There's no shame in asking for help. David cried out to God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. David, man after God's own heart, remember him, right? And if he had to cry out, I've lost my joy. Sometimes we may need to, and that's okay. Better to cry out for it and get it back than to never enjoy it again. If you have a need tonight, please come to the front as we stand and sing.